Good morning. And we have a few announcements to make, and I have to start with a sad note. Um, some of you may know uh, Robert and Jeannie Marie Gillisey, uh, longtime supporters of our class, uh, big-time helpers, uh, drove out to Branson, Missouri with us at one of our ACC meetings, helped us set up and deal with that, worked on our back uh, back here. Um, just a week ago yesterday, um, Robert was killed in a plane accident out at the College Airport last week, a week ago yesterday. And so we want to remember um, Jeannie Marie in our thoughts and prayers. And, and if you'd like to know how to get in contact with Jeannie Marie, uh, see Dean afterwards. He's been in touch with them for us. Have any of you seen any of our new video blogs that we're doing? We only put about three up so far, but we are putting up short video blogs that are going to be anywhere from about three to seven minutes in length. And they are the types of things with different topics that you can share with people, send to their link to their smart device and so forth. So if you find a topic you like, you can, you can post that or forward that to people. And let's go ahead and, and begin class with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your love and your goodness and that through Jesus Christ there's the victory over sin and death. And we, at the sadness of losing a friend and, and a member of our class, we just want to lift up Jeannie Marie and her family, that your comfort will be with them and your spirit will be with them and they can see past the pain to the day when we're all restored into your kingdom. We ask that you will use each of us to present the light of truth that the final message will lighten the world and you will come soon and be with us as we study together today in your holy name. Amen. We are doing uh, lesson six, uh, end time, uh, pre- preparation for the end time uh, study guide. The title is The Change of the Law. And the memory text out of Daniel 7.25, and it reads, He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change this at times in laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time thoughts about this? When you hear that, what's, what comes to you? Anybody have like, oh, I know that text, and that's what it means. What, what comes to your mind when you hear that? I suspect many that have been raised in the Adventist tradition have a certain conditioning that they automatically go to, pathways that have been laid down, and you automatically think, well, that means this. So yep, there's the tradition right there. Uh, she says the, the traditional view, the way she was taught, was that, well, that means that Saturday was changed to, to Sunday as the day of worship. Well, let's see if we can unpack. In fact, I think that might actually be in the lesson. They may still be enforcing that way of seeing things, reinforcing it. So central to our understanding of the last day events is the question of God, the law of God. More specifically, it is the question of the fourth commandment, the seventh-day Sabbath. Although we understand that salvation is by faith alone and that keeping the law, including the Sabbath, can never bring salvation, we also understand that in the last days, obedience to God's law, including the seventh-day Sabbath, will be an outward sign, a mark, uh, of where our true allegiance lies. How many have heard that before? So, do you agree or disagree? Agree. You agree, okay. Well, here's a quote from a book called The Great Controversy. See what you think about this. Says the last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. Now listen carefully. Upon this battle we are now entering, a battle between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah, between the religion of the Bible and the religion of fables and tradition. So what kind of laws do human beings make? You know where we're going with this. Impose laws. What kind of laws does the creator, the builder of reality make? Design laws, the laws upon which reality are built. So could this conflict actually be about which system of laws that you believe God runs his universe by? 
See, if you accept this idea that God's laws functionally are no different than the types that human beings make, he makes up rules, and then justice requires enforcement, what kind of a character does, the, does God now possess? <laughs> if you believe he's the creator, builder of reality, and his laws are, are the protocols upon which life and health are, are, are built upon, then what kind of character does he possess? You see, deviations from the one set require a judicial magistrate to inflict pain and suffering and punishment. Deviations on the other set bring pain, suffering, death, and require the magistrate or the creator to intervene to heal and to save. It's always been, the conflict has always been over whether God is trustworthy or not, whether you can trust him. And this goes directly to how you understand the type of law he wields. If he wields human types of laws, imposed laws, then he becomes a dictator, the source of inflicted pain, coercive in nature, and ultimately he's untrustworthy. And thus, this is why Christianity is filled with doctrines, if you look functionally, that have their function to protect you or hide you from God. Think about how many things you've been taught. Covered by the robe of righteousness so the Father can't see you. Uh, uh, we have Jesus, stands our mediator, plead the Father in our behalf. He has covered us with his blood so the Father can't see us. On and on these go. I hear on the Christian radio all the time. He has taken our punishment. God punished him in our place and so he won't punish us. In other words, we're doing something to get God to hide, to hide us, protect us, or do something to God so God won't hurt us. Because ultimately in this view, God's the enemy we need protection from. We don't really trust him. We trust Jesus. In heaven, Satan began his war, my understanding, with this idea. This was the allegation that God's laws are no different than human laws. And this is what the Adventist church historically used to teach. This is out of a book called The Desire of Ages. Listen to this description. See if you agree. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed. This is the opening in heaven, not not on earth. That justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. Satan is the one who originates this idea that God must punish sin. And this I, I found, this is out of, and this idea between these two constructs of law, God being a, a dictator who must enforce punishment, this has been historically the battle through human history. This is out of a book called Prophets and Kings, page 311. In Isaiah's day, the spiritual understanding of mankind was dark through misapprehension of God. Remember Isaiah prophesied, darkness covers the people, gross darkness the people. Long had Satan sought to lead men to look upon their creator as the author of sin and suffering and death. Pause for a second. How could Satan, what, what could he get people to think that would cause them to think that God is the source of sin and suffering and death? Well, think it through. If God's laws are imposed laws, we believe that that's all law functions, then God's justice requires that he must inflict penalties, he must punish, and the minimum penalty he said is death. So God is the source of death. He kills us for disobedience. And it all goes back again to what law you understand. Keep on with the quote. Those whom he has thus deceived imagined that God was hard and exacting. They regarded him as watching to denounce and condemn, unwilling to receive the sinner so long as there was a legal excuse for not helping him. The law of love by which heaven is ruled had been misrepresented by the arch-deceiver as a restriction upon men's happiness, a burdensome yoke from which they should be glad to escape. 
He declared that its precepts could not be obeyed and that the penalties of transgression were bestowed arbitrarily. Penalties of transgression, bestowed arbitrarily. What's an arbitrary imposition of a penalty? That's when you're at the discretion of the judge. You have been caught speeding. You come into the courthouse. You plead your case. You have an advocate stand between you and the judge and plead for mercy. And the judge then makes an ar- a decree and he says, for one person, you're pardoned. For another person, $50 fine. For another person, 30 days in jail. All same crime, different penalties. These are arbitrarily imposed. Think of this now. Two heroin addicts, both overdose on heroin. But before they lose consciousness, they both realize that they took too much. And they both have in their possession the antidote, now Trexone injection, that was given to them free at the methadone clinic. One of the addicts injects himself with the naltrexone, with the antidote, and he does not die. The other addict chose not to inject himself, and he dies. Was there a punishment for the overdose? Death. Was it arbitrarily imposed? It was not. Do you see lessons in that example for why some die of sin and some do not? It's a choice. A choice not to be born sinners a choice to reject the antidote, to reject the remedy. This is a book at Christ Object Lessons, page 204. It says, talking about the uh, prodigal son, in his restlessness, in his restless youth, the prodigal looked upon his father as stern and severe. How different his concept of him now. So those who are deceived by Satan look upon God as hard and exacting. They regard him as watching to denounce and condemn, as unwilling to receive the sinner so long as there is a legal excuse for not helping him. How much of your Christian... I'm going to keep on the quote, but I have to break here. How much have you been taught that God is a judge, he's in heaven, and if we don't get every sin in the record books taken care of, if there's one sin we forgot to confess, if there's one sin that hasn't had the blood of Jesus provided, God will find that sin in the book, and you will not be entered in heaven, and he will have to punish you the amount you still deserve before you are executed. He's going to find that legal excuse to kill you. This is the lie of Satan. Keep going on. His law they regard as a restriction upon men's happiness, a burdensome meal from which they're glad to escape. But he whose eyes have been, upon, have been opened by love of Christ will behold God as full of compassion. He does not appear as a tyrannical, relentless being, but as a father longing to embrace his repenting son. The sinner will exclaim with the psalmist, like a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them who fear him. See, when you come back to design law, your whole conception of God changes. We are dying, we have a terminal condition, and he has been working with every resource at his arsenal to win us back to trust so he can heal and restore us. Both of those quotes I read are stating, if you heard it, from that author's perspective, that Satan's lie, which keeps men in darkness, that darkness covers the world, gross darkness of people, is the lie that God's law is imposed. It's a legal system of religion. This is the lie. The policeman in the sky God who follows you around. And I got to tell you, when my first book came out, could it be this simple? Um, Some theologians opposed it. And one of the things that they were specifically heard saying was that Jennings denies that God is a policeman in the sky. Imagine if you're driving around town and you look in the rearview mirror 
and there's a police officer right behind you. And you turn right, and he turns right. You turn left, he turns left. We're still right behind you, right, right close. Do you go, thank you, God, for providing someone to watch over me? And do you feel more relaxed? Do you feel more at ease? Or does your anxiety and stress level go up? Do you begin to worry? Is my registration expired? Do I have a taillight out? Did I take a right on red when I wasn't supposed to? Did I miss a speed line? Do you begin to do an inventory of all the things you've done wrong that you're about to get cited for? See, this, does it bring you more peace or more fear to view God as a policeman? And I use this metaphor, but there's another metaphor. You're in the Tour de France, which is a bicycle race. And, in the, and you're one of the bicyclists in the Tour de France. And do you know there's a car that follows you through the whole thing? Through the whole thing, there's a car following you the whole way. But why? Why is it following you? So if you break down, get a flat, get an injury, they're immediately there to help you, to get you back on the road and get you going. That's the right view of God who's following us with his guardian angels, with his helping hand to, to fix anything when we run off the road, when we get a flat, when we, when we wreck our, our lives. If we trust him, he'll heal the damage, he'll fix the brokenness, and he'll put us back on the track of eternal life, the path of eternal life. That's the right view. What about this quote? Desire of Ages, page 19. It will be seen that the glory shining from the face of Jesus is the glory of self-sacrificing love. In the light from Calvary, we will be seen that the law of self notice, the law of self-renouncing love is the law of life for earth and heaven. Law of life. What does law of life mean to you? Law of life. Law of life. Would you say, that's the law upon which life works. That's the law upon which we have to harmonize to have life. And the law of love, according to this author, is the law of life. And we talked about that before, that principle of beneficence, the principle of giving, even in the physical world. We see that the principle of giving, anytime you break it, it severs the circle of giving and death ensues. This is because the law of love is the protocol upon which life is built. This is a, a la- same author, letter 1892. It was written in 1892. Think what you think of this one. I tell you, God is testing us now. Just now. Do you like to be tested? Why not? When I was in school, I loved exam day. I did. I remember, I was never stressed. I remember going for my oral board exams for psychiatry. And the back in the day when I did my oral board exams, um, we, they, 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 we had to fly out. To, I did mine in Seattle. And they had hundreds of us there. We got into these big Greyhound buses. And there was like 60 of us on the bus. And we, they drove us over to this place. And you went in and they had these real patients with, with, you had three proctors in the room. And you have to interview this patient in front of the proctors. And then you get pimped by them on, uh, you have to present a case. And you get questioned on them and so forth. There were people sweating bullets on that thing. <laughs> We got back on after the thing, and there were people you could just see. They were on the verge of tears. They were crying. I got on like, yeah. <laughs> of course, you don't know. You don't know for like six weeks or eight weeks whether you passed or not. But it's like, this was great. This was straightforward. See, why, why was I not stressed by it? Because I was ready. Because <laughs> okay? I was ready. Yeah, I knew what was coming. I, I, I had the answers. So it, was, it wasn't frightening. So... Think about this. God is testing us now. Just now. The whole earth is being lighted with the glory of God. That light is shining now. And how hard it has it been for proud hearts to accept of Jesus as their personal Savior? How hard to get them out of the rut of a legal religion? 
How hard for them to grasp the rich, free gift of Christ. Those who have not accepted this offering will not understand anything in regard to that light which fills the whole earth with the glory of God. You see, if you can't get out of the legal mindset, you're not going to understand the light that lightens the world at the end of time. That legal mindset is the lie that has obstructed the truth about God's nature and character through all eternity. Since the sin began in heaven is what I meant to say. Yes. Growing up in the church, there's been this fight against legalism, but I suddenly realize it's fighting the wrong thing. We've instead uh, we've been saying um, too many rules is legalism instead of saying the wrong picture of God is legalism. Right. So I've there's this traditional view of legalism is about we focus on our behavior and all the things we have to do. We have to get baptized in the right way. We have to go to church on the right day. You got to eat the right food. You got to dress the right way. All this legal stuff. And if you do all the legal things, get your checklist. That has been condemned. It's a work system. We're working our way by our good behavior, Phariseeism type stuff. That's the form of legalism most people think of. But I, I understand what I teach. There's this other thing called heavenly legalism. And that's the, the, the theology in which God in heaven is restricted by legal pronouncements and legal uh, enactments, and there's this legal process, and the whole structure of heaven is about legal pardon and legal justification, all this kind of stuff. That's legalism. And that legalism is the infection which obstructs the final light from lighting the world. And the core, core doctrine is penal substitution theology. That's the core distortion. And it comes from the idea that God's law works like our law. Let me read you this quote from a guy named George Fifield. He was a theologian who wrote this in a book called God is Love in 1897. God created all things by Jesus Christ, and therefore Christ is the mighty God, the everlasting Father of intelligent beings, in, of all intelligent beings in the world. God the Father is the Father of Christ, and therefore through him, of all these beings created by Christ. Now the All-Father gave to his children certain rules or laws to regulate their conduct. These laws were not arbitrary, not designed to show his right or power to boss or domineer over his children, but like the rules of a well-regulated family, they were designed to promote the happiness of all the children and the unity of the family life. Although many might hesitate to express it thus, the thought that lingers in their mind is about like this. How many of you have might have, at some point in your journey, had this type of a thought? God is arbitrary and obstinate and will not permit the slightest variation from his laws without plunging us into eternal death. I've heard preachers give, preacher, give sermons on Uzzah. Connected with the fruit in the garden. Just a little piece of fruit. Just touch an ark, slightest deviation, and God struck them down. That's this, what this is saying. Fifield's saying this is the distortion of what people think. God has rules, and if you go against me, boom, you're dead. This is, continue on with Fifield. This is what Satan has ever said of God and his government. I desire to show the contrary so that all may see. I desire to show that it is the variation itself that plunges us into eternal death and not the arbitrary decree of God. It is the love of God that will not in any way countenance that, countenance that variation because it leads to such terrible results. The law of God is not simply his fiat, in other words, his spoken word. It rests upon eternal, the, uh, upon eternal principles of pleasure and pain. 
principles as unchangeable in their very nature as the laws that govern the seasons or control the motions of the planets. The law is not so so simply because God said so, but he said so because it was so and because it must eternally and universally be so. On the contrary, understanding of these principles of the nature of God's law depends our power, let me see, let's start that again, on the correct, I, I misread that, on the correct understanding of these principles of the nature of God's law depends our pa- power to comprehend God's love in all his dealings with his creatures. On this rests the whole philosophy of the purpose of creation and the plan of redemption the existence of misery and suffering, the need for the atonement, and how the atonement is accomplished by Christ can be understood in the light of God's love only as the nature of his law stands revealed. We have always thought of the Ten Commandments as requiring our love to God and to all his creatures. Have you ever thought of them as an expression of his love to us? It would be absolutely foolish to demand our love by arbitrary command. Love cannot be given in that way. Love is born only of love. The state might as well legislate that the sun should not shine or water should not flow downhill as for the Lord to make such an arbitrary demand for love. In either case, the law could not affect in the slightest the thing legislated about. Yet it remains true that all the law of God requires is love. And that the Apostle Paul says love is the fulfilling of the law, the whole law. How is this? Simply that the law itself, when we understand it, is the revelation of such infinite love as to beget within us a returning, responsive love that can and will fulfill the law. One more, one, one more sentence or two. God is love. Every word, every jot, every tittle of that law coming from love requires only such service as love dictates. When the same love which the law expresses to us is begotten by it in our hearts and flows out towards God and all his creatures in loving action, then the law is fulfilled. Do you see Fifield had this? Fifield saw the difference between imperial law and design law. That was over 100 years ago. We're still stuck. So the question from our lesson It's a conflict over God's law. I see the conflict, the core issue that you have to ground yourself in, and that is what type of law? Is it imposed or is it designed? And then you can begin answering the bigger questions. Once Christianity became infected with the lie that God's law functions like human law, then the Roman church, and this is historic, you can read this in the encyclopedia, the Roman church changed the commandments of God, deleting the commandment about images, Splitting the 10th commandment in two, so we still have 10. People would have probably noticed, hey, wait a minute, these are the nine commandments. What happened to the 10th? Okay, so when they deleted the, se- the one about images, they, they split the 10th in two, so we still have 10. And then they changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. Sadly, many Christians have failed to see the real change, though. They focus on the actual evidence of the change. What's the evidence of the change? The deleting of the second, the changing of the fourth. That's the evidence of the change. But that's not the real change. The real change is the change in the nature of the law itself, that you think God's law functions like human law, legislated, imposed rules. What what church ever voted to change the law of gravity? Why don't they? 
They can't. So if a church does change God's law, it's evidence that they don't see it as design law. It's just a system of rules subject to be changed. Like, we can change our laws. Sadly, many have failed to see the real change and instead focus only on the evidence, and thus they stay stuck in loyalty to the false system. And so many who have reclaimed the Seventh-day Sabbath are still infected with the lie that God's law functions, like human law, impose rules, and thus they worship at God, like Satan alleges, only on the right Bible day. And so they're like the Jews, who want Christ off the cross to keep the day. With this in mind, I think we can now turn to the lesson and see how these days fit in the two systems of law. One of our online friends, Dan Wyatt, sent me a link a couple of weeks ago to a debate held March 30, 2018, between Doug Batchelor and Steve Gregg on the Sabbath. And I put the link in the notes for anybody who wants to watch the debate. It's about two hours long. First, it's important to note, of course, for those who don't know, Doug Batchelor took the position that the Bible Sabbath is Saturday, and that's what is still um, you know, obligatory today. Um, Steve Gregg took the position that the Bible Sabbath is Saturday, but it's not obligatory today, and it really doesn't matter which day. I want to point out that neither of them, there was no argument over which day was the Bible Sabbath. They both agreed that the Sabbath in the Bible was Saturday, and all Bible scholars agree with that. The question, though, is does the Bible Sabbath have any role for Christians since the resurrection of Christ? That was the real argument that they were having. I found it very sad that Doug Batchelor was only able to articulate level four reasons for the Sabbath. What's level four? Law and order. Imperialism. The rules. Steve Gregg, on several occasions, was reaching toward principles. God's love. God's concern for quality of character. Transformation of heart. Not legal behavioral performance. He was reaching for that several times. And Mr. Batcher was never able to articulate a design law, a reason, a principle basis for the Sabbath, just a rule to obey. It was very sad. So what questions, what would you have said? What evidence would you put forth on the value of the importance of the weekly Sabbath to Christians today, if there is any? What is that importance other than, well, the law says it, and the bachelor's position kept coming back to, it's a commandment, and Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Did you watch it? Yes, I did. And I was quite disappointed. I thought he was very ineffective. Because he just came back, the rules say so, the rules say so, if you love them, do the rules. It's like... He didn't say that. Oh, he said that's the moral law, and the Sabbath is a moral law. He put it in there so that people would have one day to rest. He didn't say Sunday, he said Sabbath, and he blessed the Sabbath. He said that, and he said it's a moral law. Yes, he did. I thought the whole thing was focused on works. Yes, I, yeah, I, I read it the same. I heard it the same way. But people go watch it for yourselves and come to your own conclusion on it. I, I felt there was never really a principle base. The, the moral law, and, and for, for those who have maybe had some conversations like I have with several theologians in our church um, about design law, they say God does have design law. And this is the, they make the distinction between moral law, though. They say design law are the laws of physics, like gravity and laws of health. But they say the moral law... This is several theologians I've talked to. I've got it in writing. It is imposed. It's not design law. God arbitrarily imposed his rules, and you're, you have to decide whether you're going to obey them or not, and it's a test of obedience. Now, I'm not saying that he takes that position, because he didn't say that. But I will tell you that, um, that I've heard that argument made. There's a distinction between moral law 
And, but there's not. Moral law is design law. And that's what he could never... How, he, so let me ask you, did anybody here who watched that, or can anybody in here now, tell us how Sabbath is design law? What's the principle here? A day of rest. God created the world in six days. The seventh day he rested. Okay. Yes, he did. No question. Pause. Pause. So if a person takes 24 hours to rest from sunset Saturday to sunset Sunday, do they not get physical, spiritual, and psychological rest? So do they, is there a physiological outcome difference if you do it from Friday to Saturday versus Saturday to Sunday? Yes, for this reason. When he did that, he did that as a memorial to his creation. And in honor to him, we do that as an honor to God. We rest. He did that for man to spend time with him. I'm not arguing with you, but, but we need to be able to articulate the design protocol elements that are different between the two. Doug Basher also pointed out that through studies and stuff, it showed that those that keep the Sabbath and a day of rest are healthier. But you get those same benefits if you do it on Friday or Sunday or Tuesday or Thursday. If you take that 24-hour rest each week and meditate on God and, 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 uh, and, and appreciate his creation and maybe go out into nature, if you do those things, you get the same physical health benefits. You, they're not restricted to Saturday. I know, but I don't understand what would be arbitrary or not, not right for God to say, this is the day that I want you to honor me. That's the question we're trying to answer right now. That's what we're trying to answer. Yes. Well, you just articulated what I was going to say, too. You get the same health benefit, whether you, whatever 24-hour period you take. And my good Sunday friends will say, you know, I'm reflecting on the resurrection. I'm reflecting on what God actually did on the cross for us at that time. And that's a healing method for them, too. So it has to go a step deeper than just... So, so back to the physical health portion. You were uh, both rightly stating that the Sabbath was set apart, God rested, creation week. Did Adam and Eve need a special day each week to rest and recover because they, you know, for their health benefit? Was it a health benefit reason it was given in Eden? Okay, so even though it's true we get health benefits from it, that's not the reason it was given. But it's true, we do get the benefits. But that's why you can get the benefits on any other day too because it wasn't given for that reason. There's another reason. Worship. For worship. By the way, what is worship? We're talking a relationship with God where we come with him, and ultimately the worship is not for us to enjoy each other primarily. It's us maybe corporately to appreciate and adore the creator. Isn't that the... And he's the focus of the worship, not us, right? And they did that every day of the week. And they did it in the cool of the day. Every day of the week, they walked with him face to face. They were having that one-on-one relationship. But was it not worship unless it was on Saturday when they met with them on other days and loved and appreciated him? That wasn't worship? So again, that type of quality worship, we can't worship God except on Saturday? It doesn't say that, that Saturday is to be the primary or exclusive day of worship. The Bible doesn't say that. So again, we're looking for that. If we want to be able to, what, what, what sets it apart? When you rest in his case. Okay, we're getting closer. So let me read you a couple quotes. I think you, some of you may have heard these. This is a, a book called Last Day Events. And as I read this, some people like quotes like this because it makes them feel good in their behavioral religion. And it makes them feel superior to those they can condemn for somebody else's behavior. But I will read the quote. Last day events, 224. 
The sign or seal of God is revealed in the observance of the seventh-day Sabbath, the Lord's memorial of creation. The mark of the beast is the opposite of this, the observance of the first day of the week. How do you understand this statement? Let's, let's break this down. What law lens are you reading it through, if you believe it at all? First off, is the issue in our salvation, in our preparation to meet Jesus, in our re- being ready to translate into heavens without seeing death when he comes, merely an issue of which day you worship on? As long as you worship on the right day, you're good. You got the seal of God. If you worship on the wrong day, you're gone. Is that, is that really what we're saying? Something's wrong with that view if you think that. If a person absolutely insists on worshiping on the Bible Sabbath, even to the point of death, they won't break the Bible Sabbath. Does that guarantee they won't get the mark of the beast? It does not. Remember those who crucified Christ. They were fastidious Sabbath observers, but they wanted them down so they could keep that day. Does Satan actually care what day you worship on as long as you worship him? See, the, the, the issue is not primarily about a day. It's about who you're worshiping. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean I'm not saying the days don't have a place, but we, we have to put them in their place. Here's another quote from the same person as that previous quote. Think about this one. Be sure the Sabbath is a test. Be sure the Sabbath is a test question, and how you treat this question places you on either God's side or Satan's side. The mark of the beast is to be presented in some shape to every institution and every individual. In some shape. Hmm. If God's law is not imposed, rules, but design protocols, then how is the Sabbath a test question? See, I'm going to tell you, Adventists are deeply conditioned. You know what a conditioned response is? It's when you have a certain stimuli present and you have an automated reaction without thought. It's just conditioned response. You're conditioned. You just respond automatically. And Adventists are deeply conditioned to believe that this relates specifically to to behavior, which day you go to church on and which day you don't. Deeply conditioned to believe that. I think it's much more profound than that. In fact, I think that misses the whole point. So if God's law is not imposed law, but design protocols, then how is the Sabbath a test question? How is the mark of the beast to be presented in some shape? In some shape. Is it merely the day, or do these days symbolize or signify something in regard to God and character and methods of governing? So think this through. What's a mark and what's a sign? What are they, actually? If you were to define a mark and a sign, what would, what would your definition be? A sign is something that can be seen externally. Oh, a mark, okay? It's a symbol, right, that stands or signifies for something else. That's what my, marks and signs are. So when you see somebody wearing a cross around their neck on a chain, that's a mark or a sign, isn't it? Does that guarantee that person's saved? Does that guarantee that person even knows Jesus Christ? No, but it's a mark of Christianity, isn't it? It's a sign of Christianity. How about if somebody has a goat's head symbol? Goat's head symbol is typically a sign of Satan. You all know that, right? And, and, and paganism and other things. Does that mean if somebody has a goat's head somewhere, they're, they're a pagan or they're, uh, uh, or they're, you know, we, we, uh, one of the traditions we have in my family is that when we take trips places, we often get a Christmas ornament to put on our tree so we can remember all the trips we've taken through the years. And we were at Annapolis a few years back, beautiful campus, and we got a Christmas ornament of their mascot, and their mascot is a goat. So we have a little goat on our Christmas tree. Does that mean we're giving credence to Satan? No, it does not. I'm going to tell you in case some of you didn't know. (laughs) What is a flag? 
There's a flag back behind me. It's a sign or a mark, okay? The U.S. flag is a mark of the United States of America. But the flag, is the flag the same thing as the United States of America? Could someone wear the U.S. flag or wave the U.S. flag and actually be an enemy of the United States? Could somebody at wartime put on one of our uniforms, one of our flags, and be working to infiltrate our lines and to hurt our forces? Could that happen? It did happen in in World War II. If someone worships on the Bible Sabbath, could they actually be receiving the mark of the beast? Yes, guys. I'm going to show you how. Somebody worships on Sunday. Can they get the seal of God? Yes, Yes, they can. Okay, It's bigger and deeper than which day you go to, to, to worship on. So if we accept, though, the idea, can we accept the idea of the possibility before we actually give the evidence for it? Can we accept the possibility, though, that two days could stand like flags? They could stand for two systems, two forms of governing, two ways of... They could stand as signs or marks or evidences of them, but have no more direct reality than a flag itself. But they do stand for something. Is that possible? If we accept that possibility, then... um, is it possible the days mentioned are signs because they symbolize or demarcates in some way the distinction between God's methods in government and Satan's methods in government? They stand for that. Could they stand as signals, signets, modes of governing? Could these days in their origins as days of worship contain the very elements of the two systems of government in their origins. Think that through. How did Saturday, the seventh day Sabbath, originally in its origins become a day of worship? And then how does Sunday? We'll come to that. You're going to answer that in a moment. There's a quote, Review and Herald, 20, uh, April 27, 1911. Christ died to save sinners, not in their sins, but from their sins. I'm going to pause right there. Do you understand that Imposed law theology does not teach this. Imposed law theology teaches that you're to be saved from the punishment for your sins. Not from the sin. In fact, you'll be told. These are the, these are the statements and think the meaning of them. Have you heard? Well, you're going to sin right up until the day Jesus comes. There's, you're, you're, not, you're never going to get a victory over sinning. How about this one? When you accept Jesus as your Savior, you are declared to be righteous, even though you're not. In Bible theology, what does that mean? What does righteousness mean? It means to be right, to be set right, to be put right. It means to be reborn. It means to be recreated. It means to be regenerated. It means that you are actually right with God. That's what it means. Okay? The penal substitution view says, though, you're only declared to be right with God, even though you're not right with God. You're declared to be righteous in character and heart, even though you're unrighteous in character and heart. You're not born again. You're not regenerated. You're not renewed. You're not getting victory over sin. You're being declared legally to be righteous in record books and a judicial magistrate in heaven, but you're not being delivered from your sin. Don't even hope for that. This is the subtle lie that keeps millions, if not billions of Christians trapped. Christ died to save sinners not in their sins, but from their sins. I believe this is true, that we are to be delivered from sin. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin, not the punishment. He doesn't take away the punishment. 
He takes away the sin. The warning given in Revelation shows us the terrible consequence of transgression. By lips that will not lie, God's law is declared to be holy and just and good. Our duty to obey the law, this law is to be the burden of the last message of mercy to the world. God's law is not a new thing. It is not holiness created, but holiness made known. So think about rules that parents have for their children growing up. Hand washing, uh, let's get some regular exercise, make sure we get so many hours of sleep a night, um, brush your teeth. All these rules are not healthiness created, but healthiness made known. It's informing the uneducated what's healthy, but it doesn't create the healthiness or the principles of health or the design protocols of health or the laws of health. Keep going with the quote. It is a code of principles expressing mercy, goodness, and love. It presents to fallen humanity the character of God and states plainly the whole duty of man. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. This command contains the principles of the first four precepts, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Upon these two great principles, the word of God declares, hangs all the law and the prophets. These principles are made known by the third angel's message, which declares that the Creator has always required and will always will require obedience to his royal law. Pause. Why does the Lord require obedience to his law? It's the right way to do things, meaning if you don't do them that way, you're wrong and you get in trouble and you get punished? For the same reason he requires that you breathe. He requires that you breathe if you want to live, that is. It's a requirement. Well, that's so arbitrary. (laughs) That's how many people think. When you understand God's law of love, it is the protocol of life. You can't live outside that design. It ultimately hurts and destroys you. But this law has been disregarded and transgressed and is now being ignored by the churches. Human enactments are placed where God's law should be. Imposed rules versus design law. Sunday, the child of the papacy, has taken the place of God's holy Sabbath. As Nebuchadnezzar made a golden image and set it up to be worshipped by all, so Sunday is placed before the people to be regarded as sacred. This day bears not a vestige of sanctity, yet it is held to be honored by all. Understand me very clearly now. This did not say, and it is not about worshiping on Sunday. That's not what this is about. Get that very clear. Any more than it's wrong to go to midweek worship on Wednesday. Nothing wrong with that. Or Tuesday. Or special services on Thursday. It is what the Sunday... The system that it represents. And the implication of the changing of the Bible Sabbath to Sunday. What does it mean in regard to the two systems of government? So, come to you guys now and ask some questions of you. How did the Sabbath become a day of worship? A day that was sanctified, a day that was set apart, a day that was holy. How did that happen? In its origins. So you have to have an origin for the Sabbath if you can answer this question. Many Seventh-day Adventists have failed to understand that there was an origin for the Sabbath because they, because they understand this truth. God's law is eternal. 
That's the law of love, the law of liberty, the law of truth. God's character is eternal. That's true. But they equate the Ten Commandment law with the eternal law. Do you know the Ten Commandment law is not eternal? The law upon which it's based is eternal. But the Ten Commandment law was added for human beings specifically in sin. Angels in heaven did not need a law to honor their mother and father. That sins would pass down through the generations. To not commit adultery with one another. That was not something for them. And the Sabbath is measured by this earth rotating on its axis in relationship to that celestial body called the sun, which didn't exist until day four of creation of this planet. Yet in Job chapter 38, it says that the angels sang together for joy when the earth was created. Angels are already in existence when earth was made. But the Sabbath wasn't. The Sabbath didn't exist yet. The Sabbath was made. If you want somebody else's word for that, there was a carpenter 2,000 years ago who said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made. It was built. It was created. It was designed. It was constructed. And get your mind around this. Like every other part, it was not legislated. Any more than any other part of God's creation. The earth was made. The animals were made. The angels were made. Mankind was made. The Sabbath was made. And what significance is it that it was made? What was happening in the universe, in the rest of the universe, what was happening during creation week of planet earth? There was war. That's right. What kind of war? Was it over might and power? Satan has more power than God? No, what was it over? We already talked about it. It was whether they could trust God, and the allegation was over God's law, that he makes up rules, and he tests you by them, and if you don't do it, he'll punish you. Now, you're an angel in heaven. Satan has is, is made these suggestions that are quite unsettling to you. Uh, you, you, know, you love God, you love Lucifer. Uh, you can't look back in history because, to see who you should trust because the Bible says that Lucifer is perfect in every way up till the day that, that iniquity is found in him. So you, you know Lucifer, but you can't look back and say, well, he's got a bad track record. He's perfect. So how can God win the case when lies are being told? Have you ever been in that position where someone told a lie? It was absolutely false about you. But at that moment, you had no evidence to prove it. Do you realize how vulnerable we are to lies? So what did God do? God said, let there be light. Let the firmament come forth. Let the land come forth. God begins to demonstrate he is creator God. And on day six, he says, let us make man in our image. Let them be fruitful and multiply. Notice he created them with a capacity to come together just like the Father, Son, and Spirit come into the unity of love and they create beings. He created a new creation in the image of God to come together in the unity of love. And as they give themselves in the unity of love, they were to create beings in their image in a world without sin. That was his design. That was his intent. That was his instruction. And if Adam and Eve would have had children in a sinless world... What would they have done with them? Would they have abused them? Would they have lorded over them? Would they have enslaved them? Would they have dominated them? Would Adam and Eve had constantly been giving of themselves for the health and welfare of their children? And the universe would have looked in and said, oh, God didn't create us to lord over us, to abuse us, to dominate us. He is giving of himself constantly for our good. He's the source of all love. He's constantly giving, as Adam and Eve would have done for their children in this endless world. And after giving all this evidence... 
And you got to imagine the amount of power that was being displayed. We take a couple of ounces, a couple of grams of matter, and we turn that matter into energy on Earth. We can do that today. And we call that a nuclear explosion. Just a little bit of matter turned back to energy is a nuclear explosion. How much power and might did it take to make this entire planet? the solar system, our sun. Do you understand this was an incredible display of might and power? Can't you just hear the enemy telling the angels, look guys, I didn't say he wasn't powerful. I've never said he wasn't powerful. I said he wasn't trustworthy, that he abuses his power. And that's what he's doing right now, guys. He's showing you that he's powerful and he's trying to intimidate you. You better get in line or else. And in fact, he just made some new intelligences down there saying, if you don't get in line, I'll wipe you out and I can replace you anytime I want. You're that angel in heaven. Hmm. What does God do now? God says, universe, you've heard the allegations of of, of Lucifer. You've seen the evidence we've given. Now, universe, take 24 hours aside. I rest my case. No intimidation, no coercion, no pressure. Understand, God rested from all his work. In other words, he stopped expending his energy. He stopped giving the evidence. He let people think, what does it say about God that in the context of, of an assault on his right to rule, rather than using power to threaten and coerce, he does just the opposite. He steps back and says, I'm making a day for freedom to think. Get your mind around it. It's huge. If Satan, if Satan were right about God, there would be no Sabbath. There would be no weekly Sabbath. God wouldn't have stepped back. God would have said, get in line or else. You're disobeying. You've crossed the line. I've got the record. Wipe you out. Just the opposite. Truth was presented in love, and beings are left free. And so genuine Sabbath keepers are those who have the principles of the Sabbath reproduced in their character such they operate like Christ. They present truth in love, and leave beings free. And so the Sabbath is emblematic in its origins of God's government, his methods, his creatorship, his designs, his design laws. Now, how did the Sunday become a day of worship? Functionally, how did it actually happen? I can give you the references in the Catholic Encyclopedia. It was legislated. It wasn't created. It wasn't designed. It wasn't built. It was legislated. Thus, it becomes a symbol of coercive imperialism. Thus, if you worship on the Bible Sabbath, but you worship a God whose law functions like human law, a system of rules that he imposes and that he's the source of inflicted pain and suffering, you're actually worshiping the beastly system. It's not specifically about which day you go to church on, but which God you worship. And the two days stand as symbols of two totally different systems and methods. Fantastic. You see, Satan hates the Sabbath because it is an evidence that he lied about God. If he were right about God, there would be no Sabbath. And and thus, he hates the Sabbath like Richard Nixon hates the Watergate tapes. (laughs) Or Clinton hated Monica's dress. Seriously. And Nixon wanted to destroy those tapes, and he tried to destroy those tapes. And Satan tries to destroy the Sabbath. And he tries in two ways. One, to get people to forget it completely. Two to turn it to mean the exact opposite of what it means. Instead of being a revelation of creatorship and freedom and truth, make it an arbitrary test of obedience by an imperial dictator who says, this is the commandment, keep my commandment because you love me, but if you don't love me and you don't keep my commandment, I will punish you for not loving me in the way I wanted you to love me. 
I will kill you. That takes the Sabbath and destroys it. So then what is the mark of the beast? The same author who wrote that other one that was, I think, very difficult for people to get their mind around. It really, really lends itself for the level four thinker to think it's just behavioral, but it's not. This is the same author. Review and Herald, July 13, 1897. The time has come for the true light to shine amid moral darkness. The third angel's message has been sent forth to the world, warning men against receiving the mark of the beast or of his image in their foreheads and their hands. To receive this mark means to come to the same decision as the beast has done and to advocate the same ideas in direct opposition to the word of God. It is about a mindset. It's about a belief system. It's about an attitude. It's about a method. It's about the way you think about God and how he governs his universe. And if you come to the conclusion that the beast came to, God, remember Eusebius, the first church historian, part of that system, with the Roman Empire monarchy, has come on earth as the image of the monarchy in heaven. That's the beast. When you see God running his universe like a Roman dictator runs Rome, you've come to the same conclusion. And those who believe it and truly worship that God mark themselves in their forehead. That's what they believe. That's, that's, that's their mindset. Those who really may not even believe in God, but for expedience purposes so they can keep their businesses and estates and, and uh, everything else, uh, they like power over people, they practice the methods of imperialism and coercion on, uh, and, and, and of other people. They mark themselves in their hands. They work that way. You're either, you notice the seal of God? Only in the forehead. You can't work to get the seal of God. You can only be recreated in your mind and heart and character to have the seal of God. But you can be a true believer in the false system, or you can just work the false system. Here's another quote, same author. Review and Herald, August 18, 1896. In striking contrast to the wrong and oppression so universally practiced were the mission and work of Christ. Early earthly kingdoms are established and upheld by physical force, but this was not to be the foundation of the Messiah's kingdom. In the establishment of his government, no carnal weapons were to be used, no coercion practiced, no attempt would be made to force the conscience of men. These are the principles used by the prince of darkness for the government of his kingdom. His agents are actively at work, seeking in their human independence to enact laws which are in direct contrast to Christ's mercy and loving kindness. Prophecy has plainly stated that the nature of, the nature of Christ's kingdom He planned a government which would use no force. His subjects would know no oppression. The symbols of the earthly governments are wild beasts. But in the kingdom of Christ, men are called upon to behold not a ferocious beast, but the Lamb of God. Not as a fierce tyrant did he come, but as the Son of Man, not to conquer the nations by his iron power, but to preach the good tidings unto the meek, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to open the prison to them that are bound, to comfort all that mourn. He came as the divine restorer, bringing to to oppressed and downtrodden humanity the rich and abundant grace of heaven, that by the power of his righteousness, man, fallen and degraded, though he was, might be a partaker of divinity. Wow, does that give you chills? Do you see the contrast? This imperial legal infection to Christianity that led to this legal uh, version of, of, of salvation has corrupted the gospel and kept millions lost 
And within the Adventist church, it's the same infection. It's the battle that I, from the very beginning over man's laws versus God's law, imperial rules versus design law. And then notice again, one, one last quote, and we're going to wind it up. Last day events 225. Bring it back to what the lesson focuses on, the Sabbath versus the Sunday question. But notice carefully. See what you hear. See if your condition so much that, that you miss the point because of the old conditioning. But when the decree shall go forth enforcing the counterfeit Sabbath and the loud cry of the third angel shall warn men against worship of the beast and his image, the line will clearly be drawn between the false and the true. Then those who still continued in transgression will receive the mark of the beast. Notice it's not about Sunday. It's about enforcing worship. It's about coercive power. It's about how human governments work. It's about no one can buy or sell save him who has the mark of the beast. Economic sanctions being brought, pressure being brought to coerce consciences. That is the beastly system. And if you look at the history of the Roman church, that's how the Roman church worked through history. That's what made it beastly. It went to war. It killed people. It burned people to the stake. It did inquisitions. That's beastly over questions of doctrine and, and, and belief systems and conscience. Well, there's some more good stuff in the notes and we won't have time to get it, get to it today. I have to get to one real quick thing because I think many people will miss this. Jumping into uh, Sunday's lesson, it talks about Romans 8.1, therefore there's no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you know often how that's taught. No condemnation because the penalty's been placed on Christ and he's paid the penalty and therefore you're not legally condemned. Uh, that is not how I see this. I want to read to you out of this book called Conflict and Courage. And just it really excited me when I read this. Uh, after the transgression of Adam, God might have destroyed every opening bud and blooming flower, or he might have taken away their fragrance, so, so grateful to the senses. In the earth seared and marred by the curse, and in the briars, the thistles, the thorns, the tares, we may read the law of condemnation. But in the delicate color and perfume of the flowers, we may learn that God still loves us, and that his mercy is not wholly withdrawn from the earth. What causes the briars and the thistles and the thorns. Is that God doing that? No, Jesus said an enemy has done this. This is the law of sin and death. It's in fact God's creation. And the condemnation is not a legal one. It's a conditional one. We have a condition which is deviant from God's design, born in sin, uh, sin and conceived in iniquity. And without God's remedy, we have a terminal state. And thus we're condemned by the state of being, not by a legal pronouncement. And this is why there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because those in Christ Jesus have been reborn. The old is gone, the new has come. We've become partakers of the divine nature. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We've been healed and set right. There's nothing to condemn. We're not terminal anymore. Praise God, yeah? <laughs> Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are not the source of pain, suffering, the infliction of harm, that you are not the condemning God, that, that you, when we fell into this terrible terminal state, did not abandon us, but sent your Son to provide all that was necessary for our healing and restoration. We ask now that your Spirit will come, enlighten our minds, transform us, break us out of this legal blinder that has been put on so many of us that we can see the reality of your creatorship and the goodness and all that you've provided for us. We pray in your holy name. Amen.